Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. My guest today is Kate O'Neill. Um, ran across her on the on the internet, as they say, on the Twitter, and was really interested in what I saw. So, Kate, could you um, introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I am Kate O'Neill, as you said. (laughs) I am a keynote speaker and an author, and my latest book is called Tech Humanist, founder of a think tank, sort of, uh, so to speak, an advisory firm called KO Insights, and overall uh, a strategist and theorist working around the impact of technology on humanity. Wow. Okay. We have a lot to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. No, no, no. no. That, gives us, that gives us more than an hour's worth of things to talk about. <laughs> so I'll always start before we dive in, as I always start this show. Um, if you can answer two questions for me, why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? <laughs> I love those questions. I think the, the uh, I'll answer the second one first. I think that I'm trying to cause a scene around uh, the increasing role of data and emerging technologies in in human lives, and, and trying to make people think more and be more aware of the ways that that uh, those factors sort of shape our everyday experiences. And I think in general, it's important to cause a scene because I think we we are able to kind of get wrapped up in in the everyday. And I think you know we, it's it's often the case that we can become kind of tuned out or complacent to things that are changing around us and sort of like the the frog in ever more hot to eventually boiling water. Like we need to have somebody sort of shake us up and say, yeah, this is changing around you and you may not have noticed it, but we need to be more aware of our surroundings. Okay. So what is tech humanist? What is a tech humanist? Well, you know, I think the the best way to start unpacking that is to really think about what it means to be human. And I think the humanistic philosophy for me is just as simple as saying that humanity is is important, that, you know, that it's not about a political agenda. It's not about some sort of economic ideology or religion. It's just that human life is valuable and it's worth respecting. And that's an egalitarian viewpoint, you know, something that we can, uh, that, that, Theoretically, we can come to an agreement on that that sort of sits across any kind of division of, of human life. So starting there, I think we can also look at how data and technology are increasingly a part of human life. And the reality is that it's business, business drivers that's pushing that forward. So, you know, technology doesn't just expand for technology's sake. It's usually business that's propelling that forward and kind of putting putting more and more emphasis on uh, data-driven experiences and automated and accelerated tech-driven experiences. So what I'm looking for is the intersection that's that's uh, most meaningful where business can succeed by using technology and, and through increasingly automating its functions and so on, while also accelerating human outcomes and looking for that 
that intersection of, of where business has the best, uh, best chance of being valuable and useful to society and to itself while also, you know, kind of making things better for humans instead of making things worse for humans, <laughs> which I think in sometimes, sometimes seems like it's the default. Hmm. So there were a lot of things in just in that that kind of triggered me. Okay. And I want to unpack that, particularly coming from <clears throat> being a Black woman in the South, mm-hmm. where our history in the United States said that basically I was not human. And so when you're talking about a definition of human, there are entities and even within tech who don't think this is why I like to define terms before I start (laughs) Um, in my talks I like to define terms so that even if you don't agree on the definition I'm using at least you know what the the terms that I'm using is and so when we're talking about human and humanity um that's that's a blip that tech is not addressing for me And yeah, because I mean, what am I trying to say? (sighs) Well, if I may, uh, you know, maybe help, you know, kind of give you something to work with there and how you're you're articulating this, too, is that I feel like we we have a dearth of uh, women and other underrepresented people at the table, you know, but uh, marginalized people uh, on every dimension. Uh, And so that's that's influencing the way that that code is being written and that algorithms are being written so that the decision-making that's being done on our behalf <clears throat> is leaving a uh, whole constituents of humanity out of the equation and, and is tilting the experiences in favor of the more mainstream, the more default, you know, sort of societal default, which is white and male. Um, and that that's a, a problem and one that's been, I think, readily acknowledged more and more in the last few years. And I think we just have to go farther on that. We need to push harder on making sure that that acknowledgement is happening and that we're changing the game. We're changing that, that, uh, the equation. So I like to say that machines are what we encode of ourselves. Uh, so, you know, the opportunity is as we're creating more and more of a technology landscape around us, to look deeper within ourselves and look for the best of who we are and encode our best values, encode our most egalitarian viewpoints and our most uh, evolved understandings of what humanity can be. So, so you're right. I believe that there are a lot of problems historically with the definition of human and how we've done wrong by many segments of humanity, uh, particularly black Americans. But that's something that I believe we have the opportunity to rectify and go forward in fixing. And we have to. We have to because it's going to be accelerating around us. We're going to have increasing amounts of automation and AI and emerging technologies around us. So thank you for that, because that's the point I wanted to make. And this is where people get in their feelings and people want to um, clap back and, and, and all kinds of things when we start I'm not even at the data part yet. I'm mm-hmm, not even right. Algorithm part yet. I'm not even <laughs> at the code yet. And um, there are individuals who, when someone of a marginalized community says, hey, um, look over here, we're not having the same experience as you are having. And based on the decisions you're making, there are 
making my lived experience even worse. Um, when those issues come up, the knee-jerk reaction is to um, negate those, to to um, demonize those who are saying these things. Um, and this is where, again, like people know, and I start these conversations, I have no idea where they're going, like I told you before. <laughs> um, yet this is something that I'm glad you brought up because the whole machines are what we encode of ourselves is a great, is a great word. I mean, great sentence. Thank you for that. Because it's the illusion that we have that tech is neutral. Right. Um, that tech is infallible. Once we put it in a machine, then there will be no mistakes. Um, and what this conversation, even at the beginning, is addressing, and I'm speaking not to you, but to the audience, mm -hmm. is this is where when I tell people we need to stop looking at silos and look at systems, this is a conversation about that. Because what we're talking about is humans. <laughs> what right. we're talking about is humanity, which should take precedence over your code base, your algorithm, your um, machine, your whatever. And if we can't agree on a term of what humanity is and figure out how to value that, we're already not at the same place. Exactly. No, that's, that's such an important clarification. And I think there is a mythology about technology and especially people who work in and around it are often um, sort of most guilty of buying into that mythology that that technology stands alone as a neutral arbiter of what is logical and fair. And that is obviously pure myth, you know, that, that we, we know a lot more now. I think a lot of work has been done uh, over the last several years to unpack a lot of that mythology and, and really hold a mirror up to, to technology and the business of technology and say, it's humans who have built technology, obviously. And it, in every step of the way, at every level of decision-making, we have encoded values. We have encoded biases. We have encoded you know, decisions that are, are part and parcel of our, our culture and the, the systems of, of our culture. Uh, and those have been very difficult to see and examine when uh, when they're being encoded primarily by a dominant subgroup of the culture that doesn't necessarily have a vested interest in being uh, aware of those those biases. So you know, speaking about white males primarily being the dominant group of programmers and of decision makers in this in the dominant sort of Silicon Valley paradigm, it's hard to unpack and say, you know, that, that everything that's been encoded in terms of algorithmic decision-making thus far is probably heavily encoded with biases that you don't even know that you have. So there's a lot of work to do in, in backing that out, in, you know, sort of stepping on top of the legacy of that and building more uh, humanistic, more equal systems and looking forward to the opportunity to use the additional capacity that we're going to enjoy from automation and AI when it's done well, when we, when we, and I say when, because I think we have this chance, we have the chance to use these emerging technologies in ways that do benefit 
the majority of humanity. That I always like I talk about the best futures for the most people. I think that's the real promise of these things if we use them correctly, if we use them in in a, a holistic egalitarian way. But that requires us to evaluate who we are as humans, just as we evaluate the technology and the code base itself. And so one of the things I want to I want to bring in here, because um, although these conversations, when we talk about humanistic and, and you know, these values in we cannot as much as I try to at the beginning, I've learned that I cannot extrapolate out the political or the religious or those perspectives that um, I would normally would have been uncomfortable talking about because they are just like, it's like beating my head against a wall. And this is why I stay in tech because I feel that I can have these conversations as they relate to technology where I cannot have them in the secular world. Um, Because what comes to mind when I think about Reddit, when I think about Twitter at times, when I think about all these, these spaces, when, and, and, and I look at how these dominant groups who are now, let's be honest, are feeling threatened. Um, so they're on the attack um, and how they define humanity when it comes to groups of individuals. Um, there are trans people in this space who work in this space who get attacked constantly um, based on uh, groups of individuals who try to deny their very humanity. How do we, or do you have suggestions or thoughts since you brought up the humanity part? I really want to stick on that because I really want to get home to these group of individuals who feel that they're threatened, who feel that all these weirdos or whatever are coming at them, our being here makes their experiences better. Um, When you create spaces, when you prioritize the needs and safety of the most vulnerable in our communities, everybody is taken care of. This is the thing that I'm always, always pushing and talking about it. And I get that this dominant sect has always had it their way. And for someone to say, hey, you need to share, or in some, some, in, in some cases, you need to back up um, because you're not the expert here. How do we, because this is just the reality. Um, and I'm kind of talking, trying to get to where I'm, because the reality is you have people who are denying people's very humanity, and yet we're leaving it up to them to create things that will impact everybody. This is not the ace hardware on the corner where your community came in and you knew your neighbors. We're creating platforms and products and services that can anybody can access who has the internet and, and not in parts of the world that are censored. How do we talk to these individuals? Yeah, it's, it's a really important discourse and, and a, an important discussion to, to open up that way. And, and for me, I feel like the, the reality is that we cannot have this discussion about human progress through technology or at all without also opening up the question of our, our human enlightenment and our, our awareness of what it means to be human and, and what 
what is valuable about humanity. And that needs to be a far more evolved, enlightened discussion than it currently is. Uh, so I, I wrote a, about a year and a half. Well, actually, I guess it's coming up on two years now. I wrote a year, uh, an essay or a manifesto, as I called it, called the Tech Humanist Manifesto. And it was what led ultimately to the book Tech Humanist. Um, and in that, I did say, and I believe this to be true, that unless we find out about other intelligent species with technology in the universe, humans are the best identifiable link between the dominant technology and the rest of organic life on this planet and beyond. So our best hope for aligning the needs of all living things, truly all living things and all technological progress is in our own human enlightenment. So it's a, it's a, it's a big question and a big discussion. It requires that we are thinking about ourselves about, about ourselves as humans and what that means. It requires that we're thinking about ourselves as humans on the, the planet Earth and in relation to other living things around us. So this brings in issues of climate change and it brings in issues of, of animal rights that go beyond human rights. And it's, it's so much bigger than just deciding, you know, what movie is going to be recommended in the Netflix algorithm. <laughs> it's like it's, a, it's so many levels of... Um, of understanding and nuance that that come into the discussion. And I think importantly so, and I don't mean for that to be daunting. I don't think that it needs to be the case that, you know, we we need to halt progress to become, you know, more evolved versions of ourselves before we we ever write another line of code. I think that it needs to happen in parallel. But these conversations, like what you're calling out, and, and what happens uh, online and what happens uh, in, in social justice spaces and so on needs to keep happening so that we continue to have an evolved version of our understanding of who we are and what we're about, and that we continue to have a, a broader understanding of, of the value of humanity that extends to all humans, clearly. Well, thank you for that. And I just brought up the, the manifesto. One of the things that is very... Um, interesting to me and, and one of the reasons that I stay in in the tech space <laughs> I don't venture uh, or when I find myself venturing out of the tech space I kind of come back because I can have all these conversations within the tech space that, that I need to have um, because we touch everything and the one of the things that I do what I'm finding is so I've spent all day all morning so far and the last over the last few weeks purging my followers on, on Twitter, um, not for any other reason than um, Twitter has not done a great job of keeping um, social justice individuals, um, anybody who is talking about humanity in, in, in a altruistic way, very safe. Right. And, and when we saw, and you compound that with this election cycle that is already starting to be a shit show, Mm-hmm. Uh, with rope, with bots and trolls and such. I was, I'm, I'm active because I never used to block anybody, because my thought was that was my naivete, that um, because my followers, majority of them are white individuals, who are coming to me because not for me to convince them or convert them, but they recognize that they're complicit in a system that they didn't recognize they were complicit in and they don't know what to do. So they're following me to get some glean into what the hell is going on. Mm -hmm. And so 
I thought it would it, it, it would be. Let me let me not change that. The strategy made sense until recently. The strategy was, <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to block anybody because you need to see the shit that we have to deal with on an everyday basis. Whiteness has been coddled right. and made comfortable for so long. I'm not making white people comfortable anymore. You need to see what everybody else is dealing with. Well, that um, strategy makes sense and works because it does the thing that that strategy was supposed to do, but when you put and you in, um, include um, that Twitter strategy for managing their platform doesn't align with that strategy. Right, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. now I'm going back and if you have a um, private account, maybe you are a real person, but if I can't see you and you can only see me, nope, that's not going to work for me. That, that's, that has something to do with my safety. If... And then all these other things, you know, um, you have you have a, no tweets. Um, I'm, all you're doing is retweeting. It's, there's a pattern of things that really that I wasn't looking at before. Honestly, I don't know where I'm going with this conversation, but I'm going to keep going because it'll come out. <laughs> well, you're making me think of some things. So I'll let you finish your thought and I, I've got some things to jump in with. Yeah. So it's 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 this thing about. So what I do feel so in this, I, I'm back at it because what I've realized, <laughs> what I'm trying to do in in purging is not to create an echo chamber. And then I'll put a period on that. And I'm going to say yet if I if I'm able to stick to individuals who are in tech that may not have the same perspective as I do, I'm able to, I feel safe enough to, if not engage, view what they're doing to see, okay, I see what that is. Um, Oh, I might not agree with that, but I get where they're going. And then that gives me a lesson that I can teach myself as well as the people who follow me. Right. And that's the only way I feel safe though, is staying inside of, I'm not going to take on um, Trump's people. I am not going to take on, um, um, these Nazis and what, because I, that, that to me is putting a target on my back, which no one in this space is, is I'm not trying to be a martyr. No, and you don't have to. And that's not, that's not really uh, an effective way to be part of the, any kind of movement or causing a scene anyway. Right. <laughs> you know, making a bunch of noise, kicking up a bunch of dirt and there's nothing resolved. If I when staying in this space, there's learning that can be, that can be had. And so when I see, um, when we t- again, going back to the word humanity and, and human, I can, although there are, um, Cause even with the, I never remember his name. I just call him the Google Manifesto guy. God, I, I can never remember his name. James Jim something. Like oh right. Um, I get his point. I get it. What he, but what he failed to realize is that his point was made on, on um, company um, equipment, and that point caused a disruption within the company. Which that is why you were fired, not because of your your beliefs but you caused a disruption to the company and that was a code of conduct that you cite in your contract. So that was a whole different thing, but I can, I get your point. Who the hell wants to go to uh, unconscious bias training when you don't want to. And when that's usually not the problem anyway, Um, you're just sitting there wasting your time. Um, So I get all these things. How do we, I, I guess it's just, I said all that to say, for me, I wanted to explain some things, first of all, so people can understand what it's like to do this work in this space for someone like me. Um, 
and now having to spend now I have to spend extra energy to go back and look at thank God I only have 6,000 followers to look at I'm looking at each one of them every follower I have to see are you a threat to me yeah it's a big a big outlay of energy on your part and and that's a it's a really good illustration of how the the economics, so to speak, of of the way tech businesses are run don't necessarily benefit the individual at this point. And they aren't they aren't crafted to be humanistic. So there's this disconnect, I think, between I think there's this sort of philosophical disconnect between whatever is politically or ideologically about the self and what is about community, the benefits of community. And I think there's there are ways that I think techno, uh, Silicon Valley has skewed politically and ideologically libertarian and sort of self-driven for decades. Um, yet the way that <clears throat> things like the the as you're talking about the way Twitter monitors Nazi or other uh, alt-right behavior and troll behavior is using this block function, which is about contributing to the greater good, right? Like it's, it's about using your tools and your time to contribute to an awareness that is part of the greater good. And, and so there's this, there's just ways that I kind of feel like there, there hasn't been a very thorough reckoning. There hasn't been a, a, a wholehearted, you know, eyes wide open reckoning with what do we owe each other and what can we do to encode the best values that represent as much individual and personal freedom as, as we really, you know, kind of should have and can have while also having some responsibility for the larger picture of, you know, everybody has to be safe. Everybody has to have, there has to be some minimum, minimal accepted level of of sacrifice of individual freedoms in order for there to be, you know, protections that are offered to the community and to so individuals. Funny that you say that because you have people who push back on freaking codes of conduct. Mm-hmm. It's just they don't even want that. Basic. It's like it's, you have to have. We all have to start somewhere. Where is that thing? Where is and if 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 a code of conduct is something that you just push back on. Um, where does, where do we go? It's like, how do we even get to certain places? And this is why I, 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 um, my, and people who follow me understand that, but people who don't just think I'm just, I'm just the worst (laughs) because it's for my safety, but it's the, for me, um, white supremacy is what our system of economics have been has was 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 based on mm-hmm. to justify slavery it was used to justify the annihilation of indigenous people with uh, manifesto de- uh, manifest destiny. It is you and it's still used today to rig systems to do all kinds of things. So sure. when you talk about Silicon Valley, when you talk about wherever, it, to me it doesn't matter. When people talk about the North and the South, it doesn't matter. It's all inherently racist and discriminatory. And until we have those honest conversations about that, we go nowhere because whiteness has never been examined thoroughly by itself. And so it feel when it feels it's either it's always been 
cast in the role of hero or victim mm-hmm. or oppressor. And when it be- becomes, gets um, called out as the oppressor, it attacks. And it attacks often, and we see it all the time with these white women calling people, um, calling the police on people, right. and all these other things, and people doing stuff. And then later they cry and they're sorry. It mm-hmm. attacks without thinking. And so this is how, and so I'm going somewhere with this people, because this is how our tech organizations have been built. They've been built with the, let's build this thing because this is a problem I think needs to be solved. Um, I'm not, and it needs to scale so I can get my IP, uh, my IPO and get out. Um, when you look at how venture capital is set up, it is not, there is no incentive for the humanistic part. There is none. It is all about shareholder value. Um, and it was demonstrated the value of what that is was when Twitter purged last year, purged over those two or three months, purged millions of accounts um, that were fake accounts. Right. right. They were not, they were not, they were fake accounts, but their shareholder value went down that day. They lost shareholder value. So when you look there, there is no incentive for these companies to, to improve um, unless there's an issue. And this is why I always say lack of inclusion is a risk management issue. And people um, have said to me, but there is no way that, that, that you can hold these companies accountable. It's coming. It's coming and they're not ready for it. Because at some point, it's particular when you look at the Google employees, when you look at Amazon employees, when you look at tech spaces trying to um, organize, this, that's on the individual or small basis it's going to take lawsuits for these companies to to realize the the true impact that they've had because although people say regulation you saw the hearings these individuals don't know what the hell technology is i don't want them regulating us i mean they they got rid of net neutrality well i mean what, it's like what yeah, there's definitely going to need to be much more uh, involvement of, of experts in the space, and and there's a bigger model that needs to be developed. And to your point, I think the the whole thing of of there no being no incentives for for the type of thing we're talking about, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think to your point, there's there's the the risk management uh, factor, and and uh, I also use within my work the idea of meaning as a central part of the human experience. So meaning is uh, that, that all of humanity fundamentally is, is gravitates to this idea of meaning. We are all self-aware and we tend to wonder about what things mean. What, what are the, the, what's the nature existentially, cosmically of our existence. And we wonder down to the level of semantics and how we communicate and, and what do what do certain things mean when we say them and what and when other people say them to us? There's there's these many, many layers of meaning that affect us. And so what that what that plays into when it comes to business is meaning in business takes the shape of purpose. People want to be part of doing something that has some function, that that contributes to something that's bigger than them. It doesn't have to be humanitarian. It just has to be something that they feel like they're solving a puzzle or contributing to some larger picture. 
Everyone in the hashtag called the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. Like solving a puzzle or contributing to some larger picture. As long as the business has an articulation of meaning or an articulation of purpose that's part of their strategy, there are much more rigorous, much more thorough, in-depth models that can be developed that can include things like um, diversity and inclusion and can include things like the effective uh, creation of, of safe and comfortable spaces for people so that what you're actually measuring is the retention of, of good participants in your community, that people who are going to be productive members of your community, who are going to be recommenders to other good users of, of the, the software, of the tools, of the platform, and so on, that, that if you actually build a model that looks at meaningful use of your tools and of your software and looks at how the alignment between what the purpose of the company is and what the objective of the people who are interacting with the company outside the company and that are constituents in the company, that when you look at that alignment and it, the more you can dimensionalize that in data modeling and in the way that you effectively run the business, the more you stand to, in the long run, you know, align with all of the traditional business measures too. So sure, as you said, that when, when Twitter uh, eliminated those bot accounts, their shareholder value took a dip that day. But that doesn't necessarily mean that over the long run, it wouldn't pay off in this much more rigorous model that actually benefits overall, benefits the company, benefits the users, benefits the shareholders, and so on, because it's looking at a much more realistic, dimensional, humanistic picture of what's what's really happening contextually when people are interacting with this brand and with the with the platform. I'm so I love it when a plan comes together. When it's <laughs> <laughs> we've come a full circle for me because now you're talking about the thing that brings me joy and why I remain optimistic in this space is because I talk often about it's about um, stakeholder value and it's no longer just shareholder value. It's stakeholders. It's the people who work for you, the people who partner with you, the people who invest in you. And it has to start with the people who work for you first. And it comes from, when you're talking about purpose, it comes from starting at a place of what are our core values and everything we do is dictated by our core values. That is a business model that works. And that's a business model that works in the information economy. And this is where... Um, what we see um, as traditional um, tech companies are following a model that happened in the industrial age where people were creating widgets. Um, What we're seeing now is that we've scaled a whole bunch of problems that are going to be hard to solve because they are knowledge-based problems. These are problems that you need diversity at the table to help you solve. It is not, oh, the widget broke. Was it inferior uh, materials? Did the machine do something wrong? It is, oh, this 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 um, this uh, feature we implemented is causing harm. How let's sit at the table and we have these different perspectives of people who can tell you why it's causing harm because you don't even see 
that it had the potential to cause harm. And for that to happen, let's move even further out. For that to happen, that requires safe spaces. That requires those individuals with those particular um, perspectives and lived experiences or uh, levels of expertise to feel safe enough to participate. And that's what inclusion is. It's about their experience. They, not, they're not just there, but they feel safe enough to challenge you on whatever or to add something to, to the mix. And for that to happen, there needs to be a pro- so it's no longer about assimilation when you're coming into these com- these companies. It's about accommodation. Now you have to accommodate me and what I need, and that shifts the entire culture. But if you have those core as your core values, if you have very rooted core values, it's much. I'm not going to say easier because culture is never an easy thing, but it's an easier process than if the end game was to scale, just to get as many. Um, customers as possible there that could that can translate to so many different things and it's in that space that we start creating things that don't harm the customers who are in south america who speak spanish or portuguese and we don't um it is in those places where we create we create documentation that people in south korea can can understand and translate for themselves and read it is in those safe safe spaces built on core values that think about the humanity of all even if you don't even know whose humanity it is yet because now we're not talking about intention we're talking about impact yeah i love that model i think that's such an important model to remember i think i'm pretty sure i I wrote about it in tech humanist as well uh included that that thought and i also wanted to point out that i think that what's so What's so readily obvious about <clears throat> about what you're saying and why it makes sense is that you know we have this kind of uh, uh, common adage I think that that people talk about that the magic happens outside your comfort zone that in order for things to to happen that are great in your life you have to step out your comfort zone and I think that's that's what really in a in a more dimensional way you're talking about by having a diverse array of constituents that are participating in not only the discussion, but the decision-making for a company and being able to, to, to sort of equally participate in, in all of that, it, because it's not as comfortable as if a, a company leader starts the company and then continues to hire people that remind him, let's be honest, or, or her <laughs> of him or herself. Uh, but, but if you actually broaden that that base and get more and more people to be part of, of the decision-making that think differently from you, which inherently people who have different lived experience are going to tend to do. Uh, we, we see a lot of actual results from that. I, I have a section in Tech Humanist where I cite some numbers. Diverse firms have been shown to be more innovative with um, diverse companies, 45% more likely to have growth and market share and 70% more likely to break into new markets. So it isn't even just about it feels good or it's the right thing to do. Thank you. So my my research before I dropped out of my doctoral program, because I was like, screw this, um, I got all the knowledge that I needed. But the thing that 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 um, I got so excited about, and this is why I love building businesses, I love building businesses, is because... Um, it's, it's, yeah, you know, that's a great thing to have and it feels great and all that stuff. That's a bonus. That's a cherry on top. 
But when we're talking just business-wise, if you're hiring me and I don't feel safe enough to add value, why? I'm wasting your money. That's just bottom line. I am wasting right. money. I'm on your clock. I'm doing the very bare minimum and I'm wasting your money. And, if this, and because this is a knowledge economy, businesses thrive and grow based on innovation and differentiation. Who wants to compete on price? No one wants to compete on price. So if you don't have, if I have tacit knowledge inside my head as an employee, and I don't feel safe enough to not only share that, but, a, but in, a, a share it in a way that enables business leaders to be able to s- s- pass that to people within the organization so that we can scale that and, and use that for innovation and differentiation. That is an opportunity that walks out the door. Right. And so I was in, we had, um, uh, we did recently a global diversity CFP day, which is an opportunity that Peter Akins, um, he, he used to run um, Scotland JS and Scotland CSS. Um, it's an idea he had to get more marginalized, under, excuse me, underrepresented people on the platform was to provide an opportunity. We, it's, it happened over 30 hours over this, over this past weekend where we, um, um, 80 locations around the world where we helped people get um, write their bios, get ready to, to submit their first talks, their talk proposals. And um, one of the things that's so important there is once these individuals are on the platform, then the stereotypical tech person can finally see, oh, there are other perspectives I need to, because right now, you just assume because whiteness has never been examined that everybody's having the same experience. We're not. Mine doesn't have to be worse. I don't have to be impoverished. I don't, mm-hmm. My experience is just different. And so I think about problems differently. And so one of the things that one of the people, one of the gentlemen there, he was wanted to do a talk on. He was talking about the challenges with managers um, and you have these developers who, you know, they, 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 they want to be in their code and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, who gives a shit about somebody writing an opus with code? That means absolutely nothing if it does not drive my business strategy. I need this, per- I need this developer, this engineer, this programmer, whatever title you want to give them to understand the business imperatives so that they can, that will inform their decisions. It is not about them sitting there with their headphones on anymore, creating this beautiful code because your beautiful code, if it does not align with what I have, gets me nowhere. Yeah. And I think that the, the real step forward from all of this too, is that we, as you say, it's, it's knowledge work and it's so much more complex. There's so much more to unpack and, and to examine. And the reality is, is, is experience work too. We need to be thinking of, of dimensionally about experiences. That's the, the framework of, of my work over the last, I don't know, several decades, in fact, I would say. The, wor- the book before Tech Humanist is called Pixels in Place. It was all about the integration of digital and physical experiences. And so, so much of my work over the last several years has been about looking at, at experiences in a rich dimensional way. And the, the truth is that when you start looking at how they play out, how experiences play out at scale, uh, to your earlier point about these you know, companies seeking scale, the, the shape that those experiences take is going to be increasingly important to, to understand with when it gains scale through automation and AI. 
So you have things like uh, the example I use within Tech Humanist is uh, Amazon Go, you know, the store that has the cashierless checkout where you just walk out through the gates and it automatically rings you up for your purchases. Well, there's a uh, there's a part of the onboarding process to that store when you open up the app for the first time and it's talking you through, you know, kind of how to use it and, and what to expect. One of the things that it says is since uh, you know, you are charged for what you take off the shelf. Don't take anything off the shelf for anyone else. And when I read that, I just kind of had this red flag moment of like, well, that's not my experience in grocery stores. And I don't, I don't think it's many people's experience in grocery stores that you, that you can't take things off the shelf for other people. Cause that happens all the time. I'm asked constantly to take things off the shelf for people. And so I just think about what that looks like at scale. It's, it's such a trivial seeming thing. But when you really try to examine what happens when the Amazon Go store becomes the default retail model, and we've all been discouraged from helping each other out. Exactly. Right? The, the person who can't reach the top shelf. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, I'm sorry. You got to, hey, I'm not. You're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> and then that does affect how we interact as humans. Exactly. So this the larger point there is that experience at scale does change culture because experience at scale is culture. So when, when we have these conversations about experience and it needs to be faceted and it needs to be dimensional, it needs to represent all constituents that we can possibly have in, in the discussion, it's not just academic. We're talking about things that are truly going to change our surroundings and our landscape and, and the way we interact with each other over time. And it's so interesting because um, I've been having these conversations because I'm so sick of people um, when we talk about like the lack of um, um, diversity. Everybody wants to talk about the pipeline. And then when you look at why there's a why they why they focus on the pipeline issue is this requirement of CS degrees. The majority of developer jobs do not require a CS degree. Um, if, if you're not doing uh, or definitely a Ph.D., there are very few um, um, when you look at the millions of developers out there and the jobs that require that, most of them are functional. Hey, let's let's sit down and talk about this problem. Let's figure out what what tool technology to use to solve this problem um, and move forward. That is a huge barrier for when you're talking about experiences, because what mm-hmm. you're doing is you're creating barriers to entry for people who have the experiences that will help you solve the problem because they don't have this degree, which is really not required for most of these jobs. Right. And, and, you know, I've been in tech for over 20 years and I know that I've seen the lines shift anyway, like the, the job descriptions have evolved. The distinctions between what is one person's job and another person's job have evolved. And I think it just, it illustrates the fact that it's going to keep changing. We're going to keep having to move the goalposts and everybody's going to have to keep learning new skills and adapting to the changing requirements. So what we really need is not so much a specific degree with specific requirements within that degree. We need a diverse array of people's way of thinking. We need people who have diverse educational backgrounds, diverse lived perspectives and experiences and so on, all coming together and trying to solve problems together in new and interesting and innovative ways that are mindful of all of humanity, that, that take into consideration what the ultimate experience is going to be for different constituents, different stakeholders in humanity, in, in the human experience. 
that's so interesting because it reminds me of how when I was, um, I use this, ex- this example a lot um, when I talk, when I do my talks, but it really developed when I was um, a high school teacher. And I would say, I don't believe in, uh, in um, um, uh, compromise. Don't believe in compromise. Because what happens is, I use, I use this as a, an example, when you have paint. You put the paint in the middle of the room and, and then I don't like this color. So that means I got to eliminate that. And I'm, I don't like that color. So I'm going to eliminate that. And what you have is a whole bunch of colors left that really no one wants. <laughs> now I'm having to make something with it. I prefer collaboration, which is we all put our colors in and we create something together that we can never create on our own. Mm-hmm. And we can like you were saying, create these beautiful tapestries and pictures and, and masterpieces that from perspectives that I didn't even realize that existed just because I put my, my paint there I, 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 and allowed other people to use it, you know, um, and didn't and then get mad and walk away with my paint. And this is how this has to work. It has to come from all these different um, you know, it's not just paint. I mean, if I want to continue with this uh, art analogy, well, let's. So I'm bringing pl- paint. I'm bringing. I'm, I'm bringing clay. I'm bringing color pencils. I'm bringing crayons. I'm bringing chalk. You know, it's like all these different things. Well, you know what? I don't even want to white work on this canvas. I want to work on a wall. I want to work on a cement. You know, it's all these different things that if we get uncomfortable. Um, and saying, oh, I didn't, mm, I, I, okay, you know what? I don't like that right now, but I'm just going to sit with it and I'm going to see what the end product looks like. Let me see what the end product looks like. And, and that could be at the end of a conversation, at the end of a meeting, um, at the end of an email exchange, sl- uh, a Slack conversation. It doesn't have to be a full blown out MVP or a scale thing, but having, but creating those safe spaces to say, um, Every, every lived experience perspective has value. Now, we may not use it. We may not use it, but it does have value. Um, because just like, just in this conversation, because I'm always a person who wants to model behavior, you say something, it triggers something in me. I say something, it triggers something in you. Mm-hmm. And that's how that goes. And this is how, this is how every single time, and we're almost done with the hour. This is how every single hour happens because it doesn't require me to sit here by myself and hold a conversation. It doesn't require me to ask you questions and, and you have to um, answer those questions as in an interview. That works in some spaces, but for me, this fluid not knowing is just the most organic. It's scary, but I really like it. <laughs> well, and I think it it kind of uh, it sort of points to what I think is the the most effective model or type of model for cultures for organizational cultures, which is you have to be willing to experiment. You have to be willing to hold things loosely and hold ideas loosely and not be married to an outcome. And I think that that type of approach is becoming a little more common at, at, with with the emergence of data-driven models. I think people are, are using, you know, A-B testing and multivariate testing and, and so learning to not have allegiance to a, a hypothesis that, that they may have started with. But I think it has to go so much broader than that. And we have to bring human values into that model as well. And we need to think about, about nuance 
and how the ways that we interact with each other and the effect, the the aggregate effect of of blending and mixing and and uh, the sort of combinatorial effect of our experiences and our perspectives can come up with new ideas and new approaches that we would never have been able to come up with one-on-one. And and those can be things that we can try in the market. We can try in the software. We can try, you know, in in the context of of business or culture or organizations and see how they play. And I think it's just, it's a matter of feeling safe enough and cared for enough and part of a culture enough to be able to suggest ideas and try the ideas and, and hold them loosely enough to see how do they play and how, and to what extent? It certainly doesn't have to be all or nothing either. Exactly. There, I mean, there's a lot of gray. But one of the things that you just hit that really that really stands out for me, especially coming from education, is one of the things we need to do is retrain our brains that quote unquote mistakes are not fatal. Right. Our education system, K through twelve and and undergraduate as well. This is what I loved about graduate school was that. Um, it's about experimenting. It's about having a, pot- and a hypothesis and testing it. That's right. what K through 12 is. K through 12 <laughs> is, and people, you know, that's why I never, I could care less about rank. I could care less about if you valedictorian because that system is very binary and what it was, it was created not for your benefit, but it makes it easier. Um, if I rank students as an, as a system, it makes my data easier. It makes it easier for me. It has nothing to do with the well-being of the individual, the humanity of the individual. And so you have individuals who are so focused on this number that they enter adulthood never having made mistakes, never um, um, tested hypotheses, never or rarely. Um, they might do it in science, but it's, it's you know, it's still really, really controlled. Um, they've never really had the opportunities to just to fall on their faces and sit down and have a conversation. Now, let's unpack what you may have learned in that situation. And that's what needs to happen in organizations. Um, it's not, if you can come back, and it's, I'm not saying implode, <laughs> uh, <as you> said, <laughs> it's not all or nothing, but it's like, okay, that didn't work. Hmm, that stung a bit. And not run away from, ooh, that stung a bit. That stung a bit. Now, why did that sting? What, what can we right. do that? Because when we can do that, it's less likely we'll create other things that will scale and do more than sting our customers and clients. Well, and it's so much simpler, right? Like if, you, if you're going through school and all you care about is GPA and you're going through work and all you care about is profit, those systems are so much simpler to understand. And, and so it's a, it's a win or loss, right? Like I'm like, oh, yay, I, I made money or I didn't. But if you're not thinking about this sort of broader dimensional impact of that profit, within systems that that are more complicated than just profit. Profit is a one-dimensional indicator. It is not the be-all and end-all of business. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Because there could be so many things that are not going well within a business and you could still oh be profitable. Oh my God, and still be making money. Right. We see that. We see that every day. And I want to bring, I want to end us on this thing. And I want to ask you this um, question because I want to bring up something you said earlier. And I talk about this all the time. Being from a, so when I used to do, talk about mentoring a lot, and one of the pushbacks was, oh, it takes, it could take about a year for me to mentor someone so they can actually participate in the code base. And by the time I do that, they would leave, they would, they're learn and leave. And I'm like, yeah, that's where you made your mistake. People aren't leaving your company 
because of that. They're leaving because your culture sucks. Because I can tell you, anybody who's an underrepresented in a marginalized community, which means we've been treated poorly. If we get on a job that treats us fairly, that treats us with respect, we're staying. And we're going to give everything we have to that company. They're going to be a few people. They're going to be, there's always going to be people who are chasing the money for whatever reasons. Maybe they need it for financial reasons. Maybe that's a part of their ego, whatever. But the vast majority of individuals are going to stay in a job that treats them well and fairly. And, 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 and that they can grow and they're going to stay there. I think that's probably largely true. And I also think that it's an important time for employers and for everyone really to begin to unpack what it is we mean by value in the value exchange between employer and employee and, and what, what is being offered back and forth between those parties. So if you're training someone, if someone is mentoring a more junior employee, uh, it shouldn't be assumed that that junior employee is adding no value during the time in which they're being trained. There should be plenty of ways that that person is able to add value. And so that even if they do leave at the end of their training and their mentor period, that they will still feel that they contributed to the company and the company will still feel that they contributed. So there's there's got to be ways to make that happen within different companies. And I've seen many different models for this. And, and I, I think you know, it would be a whole other conversation that we could get into about that. But I think there's, with the emergence of automation, we're going to see the the nature and shape of jobs changing, the scope of jobs. Their jobs, human jobs, are going to be displaced, replaced, augmented, and even created by by uh, machine learning and by uh, robotic process automation and so on. So it's imperative that we think differently about value, about how we each add value to each other and to the organizations we contribute to. So those kinds of conversations about creating safe spaces and what's the value of that, about training people and treating them well, those are going to be incredibly important conversations to continue to have as we go forward. I completely agree. Are there any final words you'd like to share? Uh, this is just such a wonderful conversation. I think it, there's there's so much more that people can do if they're leading companies to uh, to, to model humanistic values. Uh, there's so much more that people can do if they're working within companies to uh, champion human values. And I would just, I'd love to encourage people to check out my book uh, and, uh, and follow both of us on Twitter. It seems like we're both having this conversation on the, on regular basis on Twitter. Yes. And uh, I'll, I'll make sure that your information is included in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Cause the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.